When I look at the word of God, I don't see happiness after happiness after happiness. When the Bible tells us to go from glory to glory, in my mind, I feel like that's like SpongeBob skipping from one cloud of cotton candy to another or something. But the reality is it's in the pressure that we experience his glory and then he makes us stronger. And so the two glory part is actually more pressure that hurts worse, but we get to experience a greater amount of his presence. Amen? Are you guys tracking with me? When we look through this word, there are so many stories of difficulty and hardship. I want us to just look, I just want to mention a couple of them. The first one is the Garden of Eden. So um, I'm going to specifically highlight this moment when God comes in and begins to curse everybody. Now, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago when I preached on uh, women in ministry. But, you know, when, when God is saying to the serpent, here's what's going to happen. He's saying to Adam and Eve, here's what life looks like now. And he says to Eve those fateful words, all you ladies just wish he had not said. He says, Eve, I'm going to greatly increase your pain in childbirth. And um, to this day, womankind has been wondering, why God? Why did you do that? I'll tell you a funny story. My first childbirth experience, uh, some of you guys have heard this before. Somebody gave me a book. It's a testimony called Supernatural Childbirth that needs to not be on the shelves anymore. Um, I'm kidding. It's a really amazing story of this woman who couldn't have kids. God uh, healed her. She was able to have four babies, and she had them, so her story goes, completely pain-free, nine- and ten-pound babies that she delivered with zero pain. Now, all the men in the room are thinking, ah, when a woman is preaching, I get to hear birth stories as analogies, not stories about motorcycles or football, but you do. So here's what happened. I'm 23 years old. I'm pregnant for the first time, and I'm super excited to be a mom, and I am also deathly afraid of needles, like deathly. Uh, when I was in high school, I got my wisdom teeth taken out, and I started hyperventilating when they were trying to do the IV. And my mother, who is a nurse, after three misses from the nurse that was trying to do the IV, pushed her out of the way and stuck the IV into my arm. She was like, I can't take it anymore. And I was like, what is happening? I'm not a good uh, needle friend. I'm not a friend of needles. And so um, here I am pregnant, thinking about an epidural, going, this isn't going to work, God. And then someone gives me this gift of this book. And I'm like, well, this must be the word of the Lord, that I'm going to have a supernatural childbirth. And so the whole book's premise was about how God gave the curse to Eve, and that's under the law. And Jesus broke the law, right? He fulfilled the law. And so we women don't have to be under that curse anymore. And I'm like, that sounds amazing. And my precious firstborn, Eli, was 10 days overdue. And I show up to the hospital to be induced. And when they started the Pitocin, and I I felt that first contraction, something went really, really wrong, and I was not experiencing the supernatural childbirth I had planned to have, and by planned, I mean I did zero research. I did one childbirth education class, and I literally tuned out while they were teaching pain management because I was so ridiculously convinced I was going to have this supernatural childbirth. God bless my amazing husband and the incredible nurse that were in the room with me that managed to get me through without an epidural. And let me just tell you, multiple times in that experience, I was thinking about Eve, self-control woman, and we wouldn't be in this mess. I know you all are wondering, I never had a natural childbirth again after that experience. Uh, so God says to Eve, I'm going to greatly increase your pain in childbirth. And, and we're going, why? Why, God? Isn't childbirth supposed to be this beautiful thing? 
And when he looks at the serpent, I know I'm kind of skipping around that, paraphrasing that passage, but he looks at the serpent and he says, her offspring, right? Her offspring, her seed is going to have dominion over you. What does he say? He says that the heel of her seed will crush your head. So why does he make it painful? This is what I think the Lord, I think this is what God was doing. Listen, Eve, when you bring a life into the world, this is a sanctified, holy experience. When you bear children, they bear my image. When you bring life into the world, they are made in my likeness. And not just Jesus, but all of them will have dominion over the serpent. And I need you to understand how significant that is. So I'm going to have to make it more painful for you so that the cost makes it worth it. So when you're standing in a delivery room experience and, and you're, you're out but through, I have to get this thing out of me. That's the only solution, right? And you go through this pain. I'll spare you the details, those of you who haven't experienced this for yourself. But you go through this pain, and it is God, in, in a sense, he's saying, look, I know you don't want to endure it, but what comes forth is so worth it. It's costly to bear the image bearers of God. The Day of Atonement, right? Grant mentioned this last week. Every year, on a specific day, they would gather a lamb or a goat, and they would, it's a lamb or a goat? I never can get this straight. It's a goat, the scapegoat, yes. And uh, they would pass it around, right? And this goat was selected to endure the suffering. And everybody, we would take a goat, and we'd make you all touch it. And it would be a metaphor. Put your sin onto this goat, and then we would send it away. Whoever owned that goat experiences loss on behalf of you. I, I think what I'm trying to help you see here is that what I wish the Bible was saying is in Christ we have no more struggle. But that's not the story, right? In the, the Passover, um, I know some of you guys celebrated Passover this week. I know we did. In the Passover, part of the, the command that God tells us in, in uh, the Old Testament is to take the bitter herbs, to take the bitter herbs, and then to dip them in salt water and then eat it. God, who created you, knows how he designed your taste buds. He knows that. Why would he create the bitter herbs in the first place? And he says, look, I know you don't want this, but you must take this. Why? When he brought the Israelites out of uh, Egypt, he brings the Israelites out, and, and it's such an amazing story. I think the Exodus story is probably my favorite in the Bible. It's up there anyway. And then when he tells them to celebrate Passover year after year, he does something interesting. He says, eat this meal. Now, okay, you're three years out, four years out, 50 years out from crossing the Red Sea. Let's focus on the celebration of freedom, right? Wouldn't that make sense to you and I? Let's focus on, on the good things. Let's forget about how we were in slavery for 400 years. Let's focus on the good thing. But God's instruction is take the bitter herb, make it taste worse, and then eat it as a reminder. This is interesting to me. When Jesus is doing the Last Supper which you can read about right, right before where we're going to pick up in Matthew 26. 
What Jesus is doing in the Last Supper, he takes the bread, and I, I was meaning to bring the matzah crackers with me. I forgot, but it was flat. Just imagine that's flat. And every year in the Passover meal, they would take three crackers, essentially, and wrap them in a white cloth. This is how the Bible instructed them to do it. And the leader of the Seder dinner would lift him in the air and break the middle cracker, and there was no verbiage around it. You didn't say anything. If you've ever been to a Seder dinner, you say a lot of things. But when they broke the cracker, you don't say anything. And on that night, in the Last Supper, Jesus does what they do. He picks up the middle piece, and he lifts it in the air, and he goes to break it, except this time he says something. He says, this is my body broken for you. And when he does that, he physically breaks it in front of them. It will be irreparably broken. It will never be the same. And I will do this for you. This is so interesting. It's not like God is focusing on the resurrection. He's focusing on the moment of suffering. He takes the cup and he says, this is my blood poured out for you. I hope you haven't, but if you've ever lost blood, it doesn't feel good. If you're walking around with low blood, it's not a good thing. And here Jesus, I just, I just, I'm overwhelmed with him looking at his disciples, breaking this bread, knowing in a matter of hours what's going to happen to his physical body. I wonder when he cracked that, if he just kind of had like a chill run down his back. When he picks up the cup and he's going, this is going to hurt. But I am doing it for you. See, everybody in the room had no idea what he was really internalizing in that moment. We won't know till we get to heaven. But we have to remember, he was fully God, but he was fully man. He was subject to hormones. He was subject to fight or flight response, Right? It's interesting, in, in the book of Ezekiel, in the beginning of Ezekiel, there's um, uh, this interesting story where God gives Ezekiel this scroll, and, and he tells him to eat it, right? And what I don't like about the story is that Ezekiel doesn't get to pick what's on the scroll before he eats it. He just gets to decide if he's going to be obedient. And the scroll that he gets is the scroll of lamentation and mourning. That's what Ezekiel 1 calls it. Not, not fun. <laughs> I wonder if Ezekiel was going, oh, if I could have been John the Baptist to herald Jesus the Messiah in. Now that would be a scroll I want to eat. I wonder if Ezekiel was thinking about Samuel or, or, other, or Isaiah. Wow, what if I could be the prophet who gets open heaven visions of the Messiah hundreds of years early, right? No, he goes, this is what's been given to me, and he eats it. But then he eats it. It becomes sweet to him. What a dichotomy, right? It becomes the, the lamentation and the mourning, the suffering becomes sweet to him. Why? Because of God. Because God is the joy that's in the suffering. So let's pick up in Matthew chapter 26. And I just want to take our time just kind of reading through this this morning. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane. So go to verse 36. So Jesus has just had the Last Supper. Peter, uh, he's just told Peter that he's going to deny him. And they go just a short distance away. They walk from the upper room down to the Garden of Gethsemane, which is in the Mount of Olives. And um, this is what we read. I'm going to read from the NIV. So if you want to follow along, 
It says, Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And then he said to them, Listen to Jesus the man speaking. My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. This is a deeply vulnerable moment. Have you ever experienced something where you are so overwhelmed that you just need someone to be with you so that you don't do something crazy? It's like you just need to be in the physical presence of someone else just in case you run off to, you know, Jamaica or something. (laughs) I'm out of here. I can't take it. Jesus goes, will you sit here with me? And then he goes a little bit farther and it says he fell with his face to the ground. This is desperation. And this is what he prayed. This is what he prayed. He said, my father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. What's he saying? Lord, I know what's coming. I know what's coming. I've already seen it. I know it in the heavens. I knew it in the heavens before I even became a human. I know what's coming. Could this be, I I just feel like in this prayer, Jesus is saying, Lord, could this be like an Abraham Isaac situation? (laughs) I'm about to to be stabbed. Could this be like I look to the side and, and I don't have to be stabbed? Is there a goat, a ram caught in the thicket around here in the garden? Peter, do you see Do you see a stand-in for me so I don't have to do this? Lord, if there's any other way, can I not take this? I know, and it is true, that Jesus goes to the cross with the joy set before him. He goes to the cross knowing what he's doing, right? I'm not undermining any of that, but also we have to recognize he deeply felt what was happening in his humanity. So he says, but not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples, verse 40, and found them sleeping. Couldn't you watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think Jesus is talking about himself right then too. Look, my spirit knows what needs to happen, but ooh, my flesh is not, not excited. <laughs> my flesh doesn't want to die, Peter. Can't you pray with me? Don't you understand that my flesh is going to be in pain? I'm going to have bugs in there. I'm going to lose my skin. Don't you get that, Peter? Can't you just stay with me? And then he goes away a second time. My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And when he came back, he again found them sleeping because their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away once more and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. And then he returned to his disciples and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. As we read this, and and I know most of us know this story backwards and forwards, I'm asking the Holy Spirit to illuminate this word to us. Illuminate his word to us. Because I think what's happening here is that Jesus is 
not sure in his humanity if he can proceed through all the things that have to be done. If you look at the story through the bird's eye view, we know he has to be tried. He's going to be tried illegally. He's going to be flogged. You know, he's going to be tortured. He's going to be crucified. He knows that, right? And when I read this, what I see is Jesus having a battle in his soul between whether or not he will be able to fulfill what God has asked of him correctly. Does this make sense? Like, if I'm Jesus, which, I mean, oh, Lord, I can't even imagine that. But if we're putting ourselves in Jesus's shoes, he says a few chapters earlier, he's telling a story about, you know, well, I could just call down all the angels. My father would send them. So what is he doing? I think he's looking ahead and going, do I have the guts when I'm being tortured, when I'm being like flogged, do I have the guts to not call down the angels? Do I have the guts to not just be like, oh, you idiots, I am the son of God. He has to walk this so that he can genuinely still be sinless when he takes up the cross, right? Are you guys understanding this? I just think there's something so profound when we understand the agony that he experienced. Other chapters reference Jesus sweating blood. He was in so much inner anguish that he began to actually sweat blood, which is something that can physically happen to someone. And you have to ask yourself, what is he in anguish about? Because before the foundations of the world, he knew he was going to die. So the question becomes, what was causing him so much agony? I think there might be two. I, I can think of two things, and you might come up with others. One suggestion I would have is, is this, that he's not sure he can, in his flesh, he can do all of these things, right? This is what he said. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And the other thing I think he's experiencing is the anticipation of the separation of his father. From the beginning of time, Jesus and the Father are one. John 1 tells us, in the beginning, the word was with God and the word was God. And Jesus is looking, saying, I know I will have to be apart from him. And he's going, Dad, Dad, I don't want to do that. Isn't there like another way? Can't I fulfill this without breaking my relationship with you? I don't think God is sadistic or angry looking, looking at Jesus and saying, no, son, you just got to do it. Suck it up, bud. I actually see this story as the father also crying alongside and saying, there's just not another way, man. We both love people so much, and they royally screwed up too many times. This is it. And Jesus is coming back to the Father, and when he prays that second time, it's like he's saying, give me the strength, right? Give me the strength to endure the number one thing I can't stand, to be separated from you, so that these people can come into that same thing, so that you can come into that same reality where you don't have to be separated from God. Jesus is going, if, it's, if it has to be this, I will endure so that everyone can come into me and be with you like I've been with you forever. Help us, God. Help us, Lord, to understand the cost so that we could, it's like, this is what he did. He did this for you so that you could experience life like he does. Let's keep going. 
Um, well, so we know the next, in verse 47, while, while he was still speaking, Judas and one of the 12 arrived with him was a large crowd with uh, swords and clubs sent from the chief priests and the elders of the people. And now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. This is so dirty. This is just so bad. The one, he says, the one I kiss is the man. Arrest him. And then he goes right up. Hey, Jesus. He goes right up to Jesus. Greetings, Rabbi. And he kisses him. And then Jesus replies, do what you came for, friend. See, when we watch Jesus go in and out of this full understanding of what's going to happen, that's how we know that he knew exactly what had to happen, right? He can sit with Judas because he's not, yes, he's being betrayed, but he's not internalizing it as rejection. He just knows it's part of the process. He knows what the end goal is. But when we look at his agony, his agony comes in his perception, his, his future understanding of being separated from his father. This is something we need to note. All right, let's pick up in chapter 27, okay? So skip over Matthew chapter 27, verse 32. So now we're going to go to where he's crucified. So verse 32, as they're going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And there they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall. But after tasting it, he refused to drink it. This is interesting to me. When I read this and ask the Holy Spirit to highlight things, this is what, this is what he said. Just moments before, right? Just the night before, he's begging God not to drink a specific cup. A cup that moments before that, he was lifting in the air to his disciples and saying, this is my blood poured out for you. There's a lot of significance here. So they give him wine to drink, and I think he tastes it. This is, this is how I read it. I don't know this to be true. This isn't theological, but I read it as Jesus going, that's bad, and that reminds me of that moment. <laughs> Have you ever had like a moment of anguish, and you just don't want to go back to it, right? I, that wasn't pretty. I don't, I don't like how I, who I became in that moment. And I almost think that Jesus obviously doesn't want to drink it because it's bad. But also, I think there was this sort of like otherworldly component. Like, this is that cup, Lord. It's like God put a little in the garden. God put a little poison in the cup and slides it over. He's like, this is how it has to be. And it hurts Jesus. we got to understand that, right? That, that conversation, that's hard for him. Okay, so the man, Jesus, anyway. All right, so let's go back. Verse 35. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots, and sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you who were going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. And in the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. How many of you guys have heard messages and sermons about the, the guy on the cross and Jesus says, you're going to be with me in paradise? I don't know about you, but have you missed that that guy was also insulting him? This is what he says. The rebels that they were crucified, he was crucified in the middle of, were also insulting him. Jesus' ability to stay connected to the Father and do what he was tasked to do is unbelievable. 
But he doesn't just do that because he's God. He does that to demonstrate that you and I are actually able to enter into the same life that Jesus had. And so then we see in verse 45, from noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. Let's pause there for a second. Jesus is on the cross about 9 a.m. is what they think. By noon. So he's been hanging there for three hours, naked, being insulted. And at noon, the sky goes dark. And I know that we've talked about this before, that historically or biblical history, the only other time that the sky goes dark like an eclipse, a total eclipse, but for three days uh, in, the, in Exodus during the plague. I think, it's, am I wrong about three days? It's not three days. Sorry, it's not three days. Uh, I was thinking about the resurrection. Uh, anyways, the sky goes dark, and it's a plague. It's, it's, God, it's a plague that God does. It signified judgment. And so when the sky goes dark and Jesus is on the cross, there's some connection there that it speaks to God's judgment on Pharaoh in the Old Testament. But I also feel like there are other layers to this, and and here's what I want us to note. Jesus is on the cross, and he is enduring the, the wrath of God. We have to understand that God is not an angry God who just shoots out wrath because he can't control his temper. The way the world works, it, there are consequences for our actions, right? The law of sowing and reaping. This is how it is. When Adam and Eve sin, a, a, an animal has to die so their skin can be the covering for them. That, from that point forward, there is this system of payment, usually blood payment for the things that we do, right? And so we understand that. So when God is pouring out his wrath, he is satisfying the system, of all of the debt that will be owed and had already been owed. Does this make sense? And so God is pouring out his wrath, not because he's excited to punish Jesus because he wishes he could punish you, but he is dealing with the incorrect system that couldn't allow for his grace to be on display because that's how it was supposed to be in the Garden of Eden. When they were driven out from the Garden of Eden and he puts the flaming sword angel, the fearsome guy, and nobody can go back in the Garden of Eden, now we can live like we are in Eden in Christ. Does this make sense? And so God was dealing with the atmosphere and the system so that he could bring us into what we should have been in Eden all along. And what's fascinating about this and what we have to understand is that God is not, he was not excited to punish Jesus. And in these moments, this is the only moment in history from the beginning until the end where Jesus and the Father will be separated by the issue of sin. It's the only time. He was completely sinless before he got up on the cross, right? And in that experience, as God is having to, to, to put the sin on and it's causing distance there and Jesus is having to receive it and the sky goes black and there's this part of me that wonders if the earth and creation doesn't know what to do with the Father and the Son not being in perfect unity. Because they together created it, right? Jesus was there when it was created. 
And I don't know exactly why the sky goes black. I think it could be either of these things. But the earth begins to resound to this separation that's happening. And Jesus begins to be so overwhelmed after about three hours of this. I don't know about you. I want my spirit to be so sensitive to the Lord that after three hours, I'm crying out, where did you go, God? Some of us go years, decades, days, feeling disconnected from the Father, and it's like no big deal. We're not asking where he is. We're just assuming he's not happy with us in some way. And Jesus has demonstrated. you see this? Do you see this? This is so profound to me. Three hours is all he can take, and he begins to cry out, God, my God, where are you? Where have you gone? Why are you forsaking me? And what I think is fascinating is when he begins to cry that out, rapid succession starts to happen. Here's what happens. He gets the, they give him another drink. This is Matthew's account of all of it. And then Jesus says, verse 50, and when Jesus cried out again, you guys know what he cried out, right? What did he say? It is finished, right? So he, the, the lights come back on after about three hours of this and God going and Jesus going, where are you, God? The lights come back on and he's like, oh, there you are. And he breathes out. It is finished. And, he, oh, and he's gone. He's dead. He, give, he breathes his last. And then what happens in the heavens is what I believe is at lightning speed. See, what Jesus was trying to accomplish was to fix everything that was broken, We understand this, right? And so the second that he breathes his last, he goes into lightning speed and he goes straight into hell. This is interesting. If I was him, I would maybe go, oh, dad, I need a hug. (laughs) Pat my hair for a minute. Tell me I did good. Okay, now let's go do that. No, the heart of God. He's sitting on the cross. He's, He's not sitting. He's crucified on the cross. And he's feeling the separation And he's going, the first thing I'm doing, I'm getting them back. You don't have to be separated anymore. I had to endure that for three hours. I can't even imagine anything longer than that. I'm going to go get them. And I just believe that what we experience on time on the earth is not the way that it's experienced in the spirit world, right? And so for us, it was three days. But to, to Jesus, he's in rapid, he's going into Abraham's, uh, he's going into Abraham's bosom, as one of the verses talks about, it, taking captivity captive. What is he doing? He is saying, look, everybody who had died before, I'm going to get you. I can't take it anymore. I need you with me, and now I can do something about it. And then he begins to go to heaven, and he's doing all these different things. And he's preparing the place that you and I can be like him in communion with the Father, And what's fascinating to me about the Easter story is while that's happening, his mother is holding his lifeless body. He's dead. This is crazy, right? Now, he did give them some heads up. I actually, my personal opinion is that Mary kind of knew. I mean, Mary's the only one who really knows Jesus, right? Because she is the one who had the encounter and she was the one who had the crazy birth story with him. I mean, who, who, and no one, no one has ever been a virgin, had a virgin birth before. And so she has this connection with Jesus that's different than everybody else. And I think if he says, look, mom, I'm going to come back in three days, there's not a question in her mind that he's coming back in three days. But that doesn't alleviate the experience of watching your child's human body be dead. 
And in her mind, knowing he's never coming back to this. See, here's what I think we miss in Christianity about the resurrection. Jesus didn't just come back to life. Lazarus came back to life. The kid in the coffin in the funeral procession, he came back to life. Jesus rose out of humanity into godlike, into his godlikeness. Does this make sense? The miracle of resurrection is not just being raised from the dead. It's the defeat. It's, it's, it's that death was completely defeated. And so I think we have to be a little cautious in how we think about it, that Jesus came back to life because he didn't come back to life as a human again. In that moment on the cross when he breathed his last, his human life was over. It's interesting. They take his body and they, they, they hurriedly prepare it because there's only a few hours before sundown. There's all these laws. And so they, they get Joseph of Arimathea, gives him his tomb, basically, the family tomb, to put Jesus in. And they're trying to hurry and do as much as they can before they legally have to leave him in there. In fact, most people who were crucified at that time period weren't even buried. They were heaped into a big heap of bodies, and the dogs would eat them. It's, it's, it's really gruesome. And, um, and so they, they petition the government. Obviously, they get Jesus' body. They put him in this tomb. And what I want us to understand is that Jesus is not just resting in these three days' time period. He's not indifferent about what's happening. He's not sitting back like, whew, well, that was a ride. <laughs> I need a break. Let me watch the ocean a little bit, right? No, he's moving. But on the earth, they're sitting in the suffering. Can you imagine waking up the next morning and going, what just happened? He's dead. He's actually, like, we carried his lifeless body. He's dead. Can you imagine waking up on morning two? Waking up on morning three and going, what the heck? The reality is that Jesus, in the same way that the Father is saying, you have to drink this cup, in the same way that God says to us, look, the, the remembrance comes in the eating of the bitterness, that Jesus is essentially saying to his disciples, look, the life I'm inviting you into requires that you navigate the suffering. Verse, chapter 28 it wouldn't be Easter if we don't read the end of the story. It says, after the Sabbath at dawn, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. And there was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the woman, do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay and then go quickly, go quickly and tell his disciples he has risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. So the woman hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and they ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. And then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers. Go to Galilee. They'll see me there. And then, then we know the rest of the story. I just, I, I want to end by just taking a look at what I think that Jesus wants us to understand for today. We just read the story of how he picked up his cross, right? Of how he took up suffering, how he engaged with the difficulty so that he can get to the part that is eternal life. And he tells us in Luke chapter 14. So Luke chapter 14, if you can go to it quickly, 
verse 27. He says, And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Whoever doesn't carry their cross and follow me can't be my disciple. What is he saying? He's saying, look, the road to, the, to life, the road to life is often through the narrow, difficult embracing of the hardship. That's how you get to where we all want to go. I just think this is so interesting. Let's look at Galatians 2.20. This is our last scripture for the morning. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So when Jesus is on the cross, he didn't just die for you. He actually died as you. He died as if you were hanging there on him because he created you and you were like you were in him in that moment, if that makes sense. And then now what he's inviting us into is that we go into him. And in our going into him, we also live as though we were crucified in that moment and we are released to live like Jesus. Does this make sense? I want to read this to you in the Amplified Translation. If I can get it to pull up here. Is yours working, Grant? Okay, shout it out. Yep, in the Amplified? Yeah. Thank you. Perfect. So what is this life that we've been invited into? I like how the Amplified puts it into three things. Adhering to, relying on, and completely trusting in him. This is the part that I think was causing Jesus' anguish to be separated from that. And I think that, that what I feel like the Lord is wanting us to pause in this morning is to evaluate in ourselves do I experience that? Do I experience agony over when I feel separated from God? Obviously, I hope you know, it's never God that's separating himself from us. He's dealt with that. That's what the cross was for, right? And so the first thing I think the Lord wants you to hold on to this morning is just asking yourself that question. Do I experience that? Do I experience agony? Does it stress me out to feel like I'm separated from God? And then the second component to that is this, that am I living the life that Jesus opened for me? Are we taking advantage of his suffering in a good way? Are we milking it? Are, are we saying, look, Jesus, what you did on our behalf, I'm going to do something with. I'm going to live like you. I'm going to put all my trust in you. Does this make sense? And I know that these are hard questions, and I know it's difficult to, to, at least for me, it's difficult to sit in the sorrow component of the cross. But what I think is so significant is that in that place, as God entered into the suffering, that we are entering, when we enter into suffering, that we do that with him as well. That there is connection, there is unity, there is uh, freedom in the difficult places of our life when we live it in Christ in that way, when we use Jesus as our example. Does that make sense? 
So here's what I want to do. I want to just give you some space to just interact with the Lord as he leads you, specifically related to this Galatians 2.20. We've got some communion stuff set up in the back. Grant's going to put some music on. And really, we're just going to take some time to celebrate what Jesus has done in your own heart. If you need prayer for anything, come and grab me. But I'm just going to kind of, I know this is, this is awkward. It feels awkward to me too. But this is what I felt like we're supposed to do is just make space for you and God to interact with each other. And when you feel like you've done that, you're free to go. I'm going to release, a, I'm going to pray a blessing over you in just a second and read this scripture one more time. But don't just check out. Don't just check out in this moment. He says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. Let me just read it this way. You have been crucified with Christ. That is that in him, you have shared his crucifixion. It is no longer you who live, but Jesus who lives in you. The life you now live in the body, you should live by faith, adhering to, relying on, and completely trusting in the Son of God who loved you and gave himself up for you. Father, we thank you so much that you were willing to endure a, a form of separation from your, most, from your very self, on our behalf so that we could enter into eternal communion with you. And Lord, as we, as we embrace the bread and the, and the cup this morning, as we take the bread and the cup, we recognize that this is your body that you broke for our behalf, that we could come into a greater place of fullness. Lord, I just pray over every person that's here today that they would have an, an, a revelation, a revelation, an insight, an understanding of the sacrifice that you made because you love them that much.